We're going to be in Jeremiah um, chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Well, if it's your first time joining us, welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, we have dedicated this year to a year of biblical literacy. And that means that we as a church are reading the Bible for ourselves to know firsthand what it teaches. And really in order to be shaped by the story, the story of God, the story of Scripture. We found that many Christians actually have never read their Bible uh, don't know the basic tenets of the faith. And so we thought that it would just be very important for us uh, to do that, just to immerse ourselves in the Bible. And you guys have heard me say this, you've been coming, that we are uh, deconstructing our faith this year, and we're using the Bible to do it. So that's kind of the idea behind the year of biblical literacy. Um, Right now, we're doing a mini-series called A Creative Minority, and we're using the book of Daniel and Jeremiah 29 as a catalyst for to understand how God's people live faithfully as a religious minority. See, what happened in the context of Jeremiah 29 is that the Jewish exiles, when they went into captivity, they settled outside of the city of Babylon. They had this resolve that they were going to you know, be the people of God finally, that they were going to be holy. And so they thought, we can't go into the city or else we will be corrupted. And so God sends this letter to them that says, no, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to go into the city. And you are actually going to be a creative minority in this city. You are going to seek the peace of this city. You are going to cultivate life 
my life in this city. And as you seek the prosperity of this city, as you seek the peace of this city, you yourself will experience prosperity and will experience peace. Now, the book of Daniel has helped the people of God for centuries then in thinking deeply and strategically about how we do that, how we live faithfully to Jesus and his kingdom in a culture that has a competing vision of what it means to be human, what it means to flourish. You guys remember, uh, I think, one of the first cities I taught in this series— was about giving our allegiance to Jesus in a country that has a civic religion. And we talked about how America has a religion of individualism. It has a, a vision of, you know, just unhindered freedom and the pursuit of happiness. And we said, man, that comes into conflict with giving our allegiance to Jesus, with following the way of Jesus. And we, how do we do that? How do we be American citizens and how do we seek the peace and prosperity of America or even Sonoma County when the vision for flourishing is so just polar? And so we've been using this book in order to understand how we live in a culture like this and not just exist but live and and thrive and flourish. And so we've been using this definition from John Tyson in order to understand what a creative minority is. And so he says, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the world. Now, when we think about what it means to be a creative minority, like, okay, well, what exactly does that look like? We should be thinking in terms of Jesus' radical vision laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's, it's the upside-down kingdom of God. I love this quote from Joachim Jeremiah. You guys probably heard me say it a hundred times, but he says, What is taught here in the Sermon on the Mount are symptoms, signs, and examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world. Just imagine that for a moment. The kingdom of God breaking into the world. The resurrection life of God. The God who is righteousness, peace, and joy. What would it look like for the knowledge of our God to flood our city? For people to be, their lives to be transformed by the spirit of the living God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to do for us. It's trying to paint this picture God's kingdom signs examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. He says, you yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. So as we live our lives here in Santa Rosa, as we live our lives in Sonoma County, the idea is that Our lives are these signs or these billboards that God has done something in the world. God transforms lives, and this is a picture of what he's going to do to the whole world. Karl Barth puts it like this. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner, and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. Oftentimes, the church has only put up a sign that just says, world bad, culture is bad. The world is evil and wicked, turn or burn, right? 
But that's not, that's not what the church is called to do. We are called to be a witness to the flourishing kingdom of God. We are supposed to be dissimilar, but in a way that is full of promise, a way that is full of hope to say that you are actually living far beneath what God created you to be. You have been created in the image of God. You've been created for God. You've actually been created to rule over the creation. And you are living far, far beneath that. And so our lives are to be casting this vision with our neighbors, with our coworkers, as we live life in this city. So we've been walking through this creative minority. What does a creative minority look like? And we've done it in six, well, this will be our sixth session of it, and we'll be finishing up uh, this series. So what is a creative minority? Six points, that's four, six points. Uh, creative minority is, number one, covenantal community. Number two, people that have a compelling narrative. Number three, a people who live by countercultural ethics. Number four, a people of counterformational practice. Number five, a people who give kingdom allegiance to Jesus. And number six, a people who do redemptive participation. So I'm just going to kind of walk through as a refresher these other five points, and then we'll get into our last point this morning. So, number one, a creative minority is defined by covenantal community. If the civic religion of our nation is individual freedom and happiness, our influence as God's people will be determined by the level of our self-sacrificial commitment to one another. Not just to one another, but then to our neighbors, and even as the Sermon on the Mount plays out, even to our enemies. Our willingness to see things through even when things get hard. That's that stick to itness. That's that hesed or unfailing love of God. It is to be displayed in our midst. Remember, Jesus said, It is by your love for one another that all men will know that you're my disciples. So a creative minority, and especially in our day and age, will be marked by covenantal community. I love what Will Willimon said. He said, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. A group of people whose life together is so radically different. We talked about this, but just the fact that, just look around the room. Have you ever had this experience where you're out with a group of Christian friends and you kind of look around and say, I would not know any of these people if it weren't for Jesus, right? We have nothing in common except the hope of the gospel, but that's this beautiful thing. It, it represents what God's kingdom is like. It's not an in-club. It's not a cool group. It's not, it's not a clique the way that our world forms community. It is so entirely different. That can be a force for the kingdom of God as a creative minority. Number two, a creative minority is fueled, driven, and framed by a compelling counter-narrative. The full biblical story of God's loving relationship with his people and his redemption brought about through Jesus, culminating in a new heavens and a new earth. We need to tell 
and we need to live out the full story of redemption. You know, many times, and I, I love and respect Reformed theology, I've received so much from it, but the Bible doesn't start with the fall. It doesn't start with sin. And oftentimes we start that way, and we live that way, that, oh, humans are just depraved, we're just sinful, we're awful. I remember actually reading this commentary called... Um, Yep. Sermon on the Mount, flourishing, something like that. I'll put it in the notes later. Um, but anyway, the, the, um, the commentator in it was talking about how he has you know, many seminary students in his class, and he kind of does this exercise with them. Many of them are reformed. He says, hey, okay, when I say humanity, tell me what you think of. What's the first thing that comes to mind? And many of them, you know, like, I'm going to be the A-plus student. Sinful, depraved. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. Actually, when you read the biblical story, what you find is human beings are dearly loved by God. That's what we find cover to cover. Yes, are we depraved? Yes, are we sinful? Are we broken? Absolutely. But first and foremost, we've been created by God in love. We've been created for God, for partnership, for loving relational partnership with God. And we need to tell that full story because we have millions of people living in our vicinity who are trying to live out a narrative. And you know what? Their worldview and reality just keep on colliding. And we need to come alongside them and speak and live out. Oh, you've been made by God. You have been made for God. And you've been, you've been called to join him in his work of renewal for the world. And your soul will be restless until it rests in him, until it finds him, that he's what you're missing. He's what you're looking for. Now, of course, out of that narrative flows a substitute vision for the economy. The way we do business and economics, the way we do education, human sexuality, and many other areas. All of these larger issues fit into this all-encompassing story of God, created by God, created for God, lost at the fall, redeemed in Jesus Christ to be what God always intended us to be. So a creative minority is fueled, driven, and framed by compelling counter-narrative. Number three, a creative minority is defined by countercultural ethics. That's a distinct moral vision. We're, the way that we live our lives, right and wrong, goodness and truth, are not defined the way that the world defines it. They are defined by Jesus the King. They're defined by his word. They're defined, I think, specifically by the Sermon on the Mount. I think that this is probably the most important document for the church, that we should be living out, thinking through constantly Jesus' moral vision laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. That should be the standard, the ethics, the principles for our life. Number four, a creative minority is defined by counterformational practices. We talked about this last week, and I think this one right now is really close to my heart. But the idea here is a creative minority is not formed by the rhythms, priorities, and practices of culture around them, but again is shaped by Scripture by Sabbath, by fasting, by silence and solitude, by cultivating a life in the presence of God our Father. And actually, I think that all of these other things that we're talking about, whether we're going to be, a, you know, we strive to be a covenantal community, um, do countercultural ethics, 
um, live out this compelling narrative, I think all of this is predicated on the formational practices. We talked about this last week. How am I going to offer living water to someone if I am not drinking from it myself? How do I speak of life, the sustaining life of God, when I am not being sustained by that life myself? I am not taking time to sit in the presence of God. And you guys know right now what's going on in our culture, just the busyness. Everyone's running around frantically, do, 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 learn, 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 listen to this, buy this, experience this. And the scripture says, no. I'm studying actually for a conference up, I'm going to be in Seattle this week. And we're looking at, Hebrews chapter 12, and there's that passage there where the writer of Hebrews says, consider Jesus. And that this, I, the word consider actually means that you take your focus off of whatever it is, your distraction, and you fix it to, in order to study, to contemplate, to allow, like, to, to understand something. And so that's what the scriptures is constantly calling us to do, to consider Jesus And if we are not a people who are constantly sitting and considering Jesus, how do we think we'll ever change the world, our country, our city, our neighborhood, our own family? It begins with me. If we're to be signs of the kingdom, properly imaging God to the culture around us, being human with other humans, like the Sermon on the Mount describes, we must prioritize and intentionally cultivate counterformative practices. That takes time, unplugging from the busyness and demands of our culture to do what is necessary for our spiritual health and our people of God identity. Number five, a creative minority is defined by alternative allegiance. I'm not going to do a whole study on this one because actually this is how I started. I kind of started backwards or kind of in the middle. But I'll just kind of summarize this. It means giving allegiance to Jesus in his kingdom rather than any country, king, identity, or cultural narrative. It's living out an alternative authority. So regardless of the consequences, we're loyal to the person of Jesus. He's our king. Right, And we're subjects of his kingdom before any other citizenship or loyalty or identity. We have confidence that Jesus has the ultimate say and authority in the world. And our actions, our lives, reflect that conviction. One writer said, As peoples whose loyalty lies with Jesus Christ, we will not participate in the way our culture uses sex, money, and power. And we must say this with our mouths and with our lives. We will not participate. We're not going to do what you do. Because our vision is shaped. Our allegiance is given to the king and to his kingdom. We will not participate in our culture's idols or our culture's gods or what our culture worships. We will use culture and we will enjoy these things to the glory of God, but we will not worship. We will not bow down to your gods because Jesus ultimately is our king and our authority. And lastly, a creative minority is defined by redemptive participation. Now, It seems that redemptive participation is really the heart or driver of a creative minority. And redemptive participation, it's when God's people intentionally bring the kingdom of God to bear upon their community, 
their cities, their neighborhood, their homes, every nook and cranny of life here on planet Earth, right, to engage our culture with the kingdom of God. And we're, we're talking about all the different ways that we do that, but this is the big idea. I, I've often thought about where do the needs of our city, its people, its citizens, and the hope of the gospel actually and practically intersect. That is where the church should be. That's where the church should be. The needs of the people of our city, the hopes and the longings of our people in the city, of the city, and the gospel. Where do those two intersect? That's where the should the excuse me. That's where the church should be. The posture of the church, as we, we all know, right, has often been to either hold down the holiness for it, right, not engaging culture, until Jesus brings the kingdom of God, or to live a life of complacency as we wait for Jesus to return. Not, not that anyone outrightly says this, because you'd probably be like, you know, church disciplined, but a lot of Christians live life this way. Yes, there's evil and suffering, heartbreak, slavery, addiction. The world's a terrible place filled with poverty and oppression, right? Jesus came to do something about this through his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension to heaven as king. Praise God, that's the gospel. Yes, oh, you know, and by it we're saved. So we don't have to worry or do anything about evil, suffering, heartbreak, slavery, addiction, oppression, or poverty. Like, basically, Jesus did it all at the cross. He took care of it, and when he comes back, he'll make it all right. And though nobody would outrightly say that, many times that's how we live our lives. That we can now just wash our hands of the whole thing and concern ourselves with our own affairs or hopes and dreams. Remember, we, we've uh, used, I think it's Michael Gorman or Michael Goheen, I can't remember, Michael G., Right? We've quoted him a few times. He talks about how the vision for the church, the vision that God has given the church in, in this day and age is often hamstrung with a compromising with capitalism, a, a lethargy uh, and, and complacency for spiritual things, for, for Jesus, our King. We've got this competing vision of flourishing, this competing vision of life. And, and so we kind of look at like, oh, yeah, you know, the world's so messed up. Could we ever really do anything? Oh, we'll just wait until Jesus comes back. No, you know, we're not told that Jesus is the king and that he is reigning and ruling so that we can just wash our hands of the whole thing. We're told so that we can enter the fight as the people of God to engage with his work of redemption, to be enemies of sin, to be enemies of oppression, suffering, heartbreak, slavery, wherever we find sin and evil, that we are working to bring redemption. In the same way that Jesus did, in the same way that the early church did, through the proclamation of God's good news, God is king and he will restore and make all things new. And then incarnating that kingdom of God's love, his forgiveness, his reconciliation, his self-sacrifice, his faithfulness, his generosity, his care for the poor, his care for the weak, the single mom, the marginalized, the foreigner, and the refugee. The, the, the redemptive participation incarnates the kingdom of God in a world of suffering and evil. We're called to join God in his ongoing work of redemption in the world. With redemptive participation, this is what we're, this is what we're claiming. God 
the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is the Lord, the sovereign Lord of history and is presently at, the work, at work in the world bringing redemption. We believe that. And even though sometimes we cannot see it, like in the book of Esther, like in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar makes a law, Ahasuerus makes a law, oh, what will the people of God do? Our God does whatever he wants, the psalm says. He is sovereign. He turns the heart of the king like rivers of water. God is the sovereign Lord of history, and he is presently at work in the world bringing redemption. The task then of the individual in the church is to be attentive and discerning, eager to participate in that redemptive work where opportunities arise. I believe that that is the heart cry or prayer of redemptive participation. Lord, what do you want to do in our city? Lord, bring us into what you are already doing in our city. How can we engage this moment? Now, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, I think in some sense Daniel was doing something like this. So, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's reading the scroll of Jeremiah. And he is, as he's reading it, he's discerned that, oh my gosh, the 70 years of captivity is almost up. What, what's going to happen? And he's reading all the God's promises to restore and to renew, to have mercy. And so Daniel's looking at the scroll. He's looking at the nation of Israel. He's looking at the clock, and he's, and he's saying, God, how, how, what, what can I do? How can I be a part of this? God, how can I participate in what you're doing? Listen to this. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Hasuerus, this is Daniel chapter 9, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What is he praying for? Verse 17, Now therefore, O Our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Lord, look at the state of our world. God, have mercy. Lord, look at the desolations around us. Look at people's lives that are shipwrecked. Look at the family, how it's falling apart. Look at what we talked about last week. Look at the anxiety that people are just ridden with. Look at the amount of suicide that's going on in our, in our, in our culture. God, have mercy. So Daniel has understood through reading the scroll of Jeremiah that the captivity is almost over. So he seeks the Lord in order to know, to discern how to properly respond. I mean, Daniel, like I said, he's looking at the world all around him, the state of the world, the state of God's people, and he's reading scripture. I love this picture. This is what God's people should be doing. This is what we should be doing. He's reading scripture about God's promise to work, God's promise to move powerfully. 
And he's entering to that work of redemption through prayer, pleading with God for mercy, for renewal, for restoration for Jerusalem. Now we also, as we read the pages of Scripture, we know that our God is a God of redemption. We know that our God is a God that changes lives. We know the story of John. Remember the blind man? What does he say? I was blind, and now I see. This is the testimony of every person who has come to know Jesus Christ. He opens our eyes. He heals our diseases. He restores our souls. This is what our God does. And what he has done in us, he promises to do one day for the whole world. Our God is a God of redemption. And so to be a redemptive participant means that we join our God in that work. That that's what we're about. We're redemptive participants. This is to be the posture of the creative minority. To know and discern the heart of God as we read scripture. You know, I think, again, this is the problem with the church right now. And I've said this multiple times. We have a biblically illiterate culture that's using the Bible to critique a biblically illiterate church. And so, you know, the culture says, oh, God is misogynist. God is, you know, anti-gay. God is this. God is that. God is this. And we're like, oh, 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 I guess it is true. And all of a sudden, we just made our God into this moral monster. When we read the story of the Bible, our God is the God of redemption. Our God is the God of grace. Our God is the God of mercy. Our God is the God who calls the broken and the hurting, the outcast to himself. I mean, we've been reading through the Gospels, right? In the year of biblical literacy. We've been seeing it consistently how Jesus does this, how he calls the broken people to himself. Why? To bring redemption, to bring restoration and bring renewal to their lives. That's who our God is. Church, we need to know and discern the heart of our God as we read Scripture accurately. Of course, as we were talking about last week, as we cultivate his presence in our life and in our midst communally, God's mercy, God's renewal, God's redemption, this is what our God is about. And then to pray that mercy, that renewal, that redemption for our cities, for our neighborhoods. And then not just to pray it, but to act it out. Michael Goheen, in his book, The Drama of Scripture, says this, Seeking the kingdom means embodying God's renewing power in politics and citizenship, economics and business, education and scholarship, family and neighborhood, media and art, leisure and play. It's not just that we carry out evangelism in these areas of life. That is important, but not enough. It means that the way we live as citizens, consumers, students, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and friends, witnesses to the restoring power of God. It witnesses to the restoring power of God. We don't just pray your kingdom come, your will be done, but we see ourselves, the church, as enacting and incarnating that kingdom life and presence. We we become the answer to our own prayers. God, bring healing and redemption to our city. Okay, how does God want to do that? Let's interact with that. Let's run to that need. 
Did anybody pick up Dallas Willard's book last week after I recommended it? After next week, you will. You will. No, I, just Dallas Willard for me, I just love what he does in many of his books, but he really has a heart to see the church be who God redeemed the church to be. And this has been a heart that God has given me over the last few years. I want to see the church be who Jesus redeemed it to be. Yeah, brokenness, warts and all, I get that. Like we're all going to, you know, we're sinned against sinners and we're, we're going to struggle with that. But as we cultivate that life of God in our midst, that we are being sanctified, we are being more being made more like Christ. We are reflecting his kingdom more and more. Anyway, Dallas Willard, I just love him. But he says in his book, The Great Omission, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. Steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens in every corner of human existence. Will we become students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ? As we close out this short series about being a creative minority. I hope that through these studies we've planted seeds. I hope that in some way you walk away with a vision for what God wants to do in your life and what God wants to do in the life of our city. And I hope that this is an ongoing conversation. I I never want my sermons to just be like a one and done and I mean, this is supposed to be something that we talk about, we cultivate, we, we, we scheme, <laughs> as it were, together. God, how can, we, how can we live that out communally? How can we incarnate what your word tells us to do? How can we participate in your life? So I hope that we continue to talk about this, but I, I want to just kind of leave us with a few ideas as we do. And so in closing... Here's kind of the idea I want to leave you with. A creative minority is outward-facing, looking at the world with incredible hope because of God's redemption through Jesus. Outward-facing, looking at the world with incredible hope because of the redemption of God through Jesus. When you look at the world around you, do you look at the world with incredible hope? Do you see a world waiting to be judged? Do you see a world waiting to be redeemed? Do you see people, sinners, in the hands of an angry God? Do you see broken people in God's loving arms stretched out to redeem them? How do we see the world? Of course, this can only come about, to look at the world with incredible hope, this can only come about as Scripture is our vision. The redemptive narrative of Scripture is what we believe about the world. 
Like what Martin Luther King Jr. said, that the arc of history bends towards justice, that it's all going, and justice is when God makes all things right. He redeems all things. He brings down what is high. He exalts what is low. He evens the playing field. It's only through reading Scripture that we find that. I mean, um, Thomas Cahill, he wrote a book years ago called The Gift of the Jews. And he talks about how the Jewish nation were just this catalyst in history because up until then, everyone had a Greek view of the world, which was cyclical. The world was going nowhere. We were just continuing and continuing and continuing. But the Jews came along and began to influence culture and said, no, history is going somewhere. It is marching towards the kingdom of God. It is marching towards the restoration and renewal of all things. The best is yet to come. Because our God is a God of redemption. Do we believe that? And if we do, then we will be outward facing looking at the world with incredible hope because our God is a God of redemption. So as God's people, those who have been redeemed by Jesus, we are called to bring the redemption of God to bear upon the world around us as we have opportunity. We obviously can't do everything. But what is one way that you can begin living a life of redemptive participation? And so I would like you to ask God, How can I participate in your work? It is incredibly proud to think that somehow we can get God to do something. And like God is ignoring the world and it's through our prayers that we can bring God's focus. No, God is already at work in the world. God is a God of redemption. He's at work even though we can't see it right now. So the question really is, God, how can we participate with you? to be your voice of truth, to be an intercessor, to be a bearer of mercy, to be the hands that help and heal, to be an emotional or monetary support to those hurting around me. As you look around our community and interact with its citizens, ask Jesus, where do you want to be? Where do you want to bring redemption? Jesus, bring me into what you are already doing. There's a story about my uncle. My uncle's a pastor. Um, I guess it's sort of the family business. Um, but my uncle's a pastor, and he was uh, very influential in the um, emergent church movement for many years. And um, he got a lot, a lot of flack. Uh, and it was mostly by outsiders who didn't know him, didn't actually talk to him, didn't try to interact with him, but just judged him from the outside. But as the story goes, um, my uncle befriended a woman who was a lesbian pastor of, I think, like a Lutheran church or something like that. And um, she invited him to go on a trip with a bunch of um, gay and lesbian Christians that were going to the Holy Land. And he was like, I'm not going to do that. No way, you know. I'm not doing that. Interesting story. He says as he prayed about it and thought about it, and, you know, he has his personal convictions about what Scripture teaches and all this, but he said that this is what he could not get around. 
He said he felt like the Lord told him, Chuck, I want to be on that bus. Will you go on that bus? I want to be with those people. I want to be on that bus. And it's this idea of redemptive participation. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is broken. We make judgments about who is worthy of redemption, who is worthy of our participation. And we do it all the time. But I think as we look around our city, I mean, where do you think Jesus would want to be? It might not be the places that we want to be. (laughs) Following Jesus will oftentimes lead us places that we are not comfortable being. Chuck, I want to be on the bus. That story has just set with me for many years. I want to be with those people. I want to bring redemption. God, where do you want to be? Where do you want to bring redemption? God, bring us into what you're already doing, where you're already working. I truly believe that this has to start with each of us personally. It starts in my heart. It starts with my rhythms, with my priorities, with my finances. It starts around my table. It starts in my family. It starts with my kids. And from there it grows. It spreads and produces fruit. But it has to start somewhere. We cannot change the world. But what can we do? We cannot do everything. But what is one way we can begin living a life of redemptive participation? I'll close with this. Os Guinness, in his book Renaissance, he says this, Only God can handle the whole world. The world is not ours to manage or to save Our task is to focus on our individual callings and engaging with the world, to trust that others are following theirs too, and to leave to God the masterminding of the grand outcome. Yes, to leave to our God of redemption the masterminding of the grand outcome. But that I am determined I will be a redemptive participant because this is the heart of God. This is the heart of Scripture. And again, I pray as we go from here, as the weeks carry on, as we finish out the year of biblical literacy, I pray that this becomes the heartbeat of refuge, that we truly become a creative minority, that we are a community that lives to bring peace and prosperity to the city of Santa Rosa, to the county of Sonoma, because we follow the king of redemption. Lord, as we close, God, Lord, I pray, God, that you would stir up our hearts, Lord, and seal in our hearts this truth. God of mercy, God of renewal, God of redemption, that is who you are. And I, we, this group, Lord, we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. We were far away from you. Lord, whether that was through religion and self-righteousness or whether that was through irreligion, we were far away from you, but Jesus brought us near. Jesus has redeemed us.
And Lord, we want to tell people about the rich redemption. Lord, we want to live out that redemption for our own sakes. So Lord, we knew we pray that redemption of Jesus in our own hearts, our awe and wonder and appreciation for our King who went low to bring us high. Our King that was made poor so that we become rich and become the righteousness of God. Stir up our hearts. Deep, deep gratitude that becomes a part of our person. Lord, that we would be a people that want to be with Jesus. We would be a people who are like Jesus. That we would be a people who do what Jesus does. Let your spirit move mercifully to recreate us, Lord, from the chaos of our lives. Lord, we confess we have been careless, God, with our days, with our loves, with our gifts, Lord, with our opportunities. And Lord, our prayer is to change. Not out of despair of self, Lord, but for love of you. not out of despair of ourselves, but for love of you, for love of our King. Do that work, we pray. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to close in a time of worship, and we're going to celebrate the bread and the cup. And I, I just can't get away from Jesus' invitation in John 6 when I think about communion. And you might have different, differing views or opinions about, you know, who can take communion and who t- can't take communion. I think it's the invitation to anyone and everyone. Jesus says, come and dine with me. Come and be my friend. Come and make your home with me. And so if that's you this morning, like you're invited to partake of the table, to remember that redemption has been brought about. It is offered to us. Whether the first time or it's simply us remembering that we have been already redeemed. It's offered to us. And so Jesus offers himself, come home to him. Make your home in him. Come under his kingly reign and rule. Be with Jesus. That's the invitation this morning to come. And so let's worship together. Again, we've been talking about this. Just be free. Be free to worship and express gratitude as you are, who you are. Be free. So let's do that together.